and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saade. You're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Thanks to Manny Mestis for that opening music and just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at C Miriam, that's C M I R I A M. And you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, amongst many other podcast sites. You can also reach our show at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. On today's episode, we'll be listening to a segment from the House Select Committee on Racial Justice on Adverse child Expe- uh, Childhood Experiences, ACEs, and Racism. We'll also hear from Peter Ratcliffe at the Eastside Freedom, uh, East Freedom Library about upcoming events being held. Just a reminder, if you've got feedback on a story or a story tip, please email us. Again, that's the Radical News Radio Hour at gmail.com. Today, we'll begin by listening to a segment shared by The Uptake, where I work as Executive Director, from the second meeting of the Minnesota House Special Committee on Racial Justice, held on September 29. They discussed experiences of racism within childhood, and today we're going to hear from Dr. William Dietz, an MD and PhD, and Dr. Wendy Ellis, a um, a master's and doctor of philosophy, excuse me, who both presented during that meeting. And thank you to our newest sponsor for um, our coverage of the House Select Committee on Racial Justice, the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits, who helped sponsor the Uptakes work so that I can share it with all of you here on air. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here uh, and joining you and the rest of the select committee on um, racial justice. It's a real pleasure and uh, thank you for, for the opportunity. Um, my name is Bill Dietz. Um, I'm an MD, PhD pediatrician. Uh, I spent a good part of my career in uh, academic medicine in Boston. And in 1997, I moved to the Centers for Disease Control, where I became the director of the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity. And I was there till 2012 and moved to D.C. uh, to take the chair of the Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness at George Washington University. And um, my work throughout my career has been on childhood obesity. And uh, I was um, really... uh, entranced by the work that Vince Felitti published in 1998. Um, Dr. Felitti was an internist in Kaiser Permanente in Southern California and recognized um, that in his clinic, which was an obesity clinic, that a number of the women that he was seeing had been exposed to adverse childhood experiences. Uh, And he developed the first uh, real criteria for the diagnosis of adverse childhood experiences. But the point about Vince's work that's so important is that he described this in middle-class women, uh, well-insured in Southern California. That was where it started. And subsequently, uh, the the assessment has been broadened and, and the impact has been broadened. So I'd now like to try to share my screen. Let's see if I can get this up. Yes, can you see my screen now? Yes, we can see it. Great. So um, 
as, as Dr. Felitti said and, and observed, uh, these adverse childhood experiences, which are at the top of this tree, include things like maternal depression, either uh, being subject to or witnessing emotional or sexual abuse, substance abuse uh, like alcohol, uh, tobacco, and, and harder drugs, domestic violence, homelessness, incarceration, mental illness, divorce, physical and emotional neglect. Those, um, those vary from study to study, but that's really the core. Um, and we are fortunate enough to have some very rich data from the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, which is a system at the CDC that assesses on a year-by-year -year basis the prevalence of a variety of factors um, in local in, in states. So it's a, a representative survey of states. And a couple of years ago, um, the um, specific questions were added about the exposure to adverse childhood experiences. Uh, and the results are, were quite interesting. Um, over uh, almost 50% of individuals had no adverse childhood experiences. But of concern, up to 25% of individuals had three or more of these experiences. Um, the distribution by race is pertinent. Um, about 15, and, and this came from a separate study in which the question was uh, who had more than four, greater than or equal to four adverse childhood experiences. And in that study, about 15% of white individuals uh, had four or more adverse childhood experiences, 18% of African Americans, and 28% of indigenous peoples. Um, so there's quite a, a substantial burden. Um, the important point here is that the higher the dose, the higher the exposure, the more of these experiences that someone is subjected to, the greater the likelihood of adverse consequences. And, and Representative Richardson mentioned these, that the, uh, what, what happens is something called toxic stress, which is a consequence of repeated stresses. Um, that uh, lead to an enhanced vigilance on the part of children uh, with high doses of cortisol, a stress hormone, high doses of epinephrine and norepinephrine. And are, these are readily triggered by additional stresses. And as Representative Richardson noted, they lead to uh, impairment of the neural connections, particularly in, in young children. And the greater the dose, the, the more of these experiences that someone is exposed to, the greater the likelihood of toxic stress. The other point about this is that these are um, not one generational exposures. Uh, there are, there's um, good evidence that these are transmitted across generations so that what a grandparent suffers may be passed on to uh, her uh, or his uh, daughter or son and in turn passed on to uh, young children. Now, this has these exposures, uh, as, as Representative Richardson noted, have major consequences for disease. Um, for example, um, there's an increased rate of ischemic heart disease, uh, of cancer, stroke, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, diabetes, and as uh, Dr. Felitti noted, uh, an increase in the, the prevalence of severe obesity. And these account for a substantial proportion of adult diseases. So almost 13% of all heart, heart disease may be associated with these exposures, uh, as much as 27% uh, of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease may be associated with these, uh, these adverse effects. Um, so 
the other point here is that it, these exposures are not just limited to diseases like heart disease, obesity, or uh, uh, cancer, or obstructive pulmonary disease. They are also associated with a variety of behaviors like tobacco use, illicit drug use, um, sexually transmitted diseases, unintended pregnancies, school dropouts, incarceration, uh, attempted suicide, a variety of these behaviors, which are a consequence of the toxic stress and, and these early exposures. Um, and these point to the need to build resilience to uh, in what does it take to enable children uh, to recover from these exposures. And, and uh, Wendy will address that in somewhat greater detail. Um, but it's also important to realize that these are not exposures that are um, limited to the immediate environment that these children live in. That the roots of this tree, uh, which represents the adverse childhood experiences, includes the adverse community environments, something we call the pair of aces. Adverse childhood experiences in the context of adverse community environments. And you can see here that the, uh, the types of things that are at the roots of this tree uh, either nurture or contribute to adverse childhood experiences. So poverty, discrimination, community of disruption, lack of opportunity, economic mobility and social capital, lack of uh, education, encounters with the criminal justice system as a consequence of violence or not violence, poor housing quality and affordability. These are, are not conditions of choice. These are conditions that, uh, that we believe are a consequence of, of structural racism. Um, people don't, um, don't choose to live in these conditions. These are conditions that white supremacy, white racism has enforced uh, on these communities by virtue of structural racism. Um, now, I'd like to share with you um, some, something that um, was said 50 years ago by the Kerner Commission. Uh, this was uh, followed the Watts riots. Uh, and what um, the Kerner Commission concluded was, quote, what white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. And the report pointed out that the first level of these exposures was police practices, unemployment, and underemployment, and inadequate housing. And this issue is a, 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 an issue that the white dominant community needs to come to terms with. We need to start with ourselves, our families, our institutions, our communities, and uh, ultimately our states. Um, this, is a, this is a problem that uh, cannot and should not be, served, be, be um, uh, addressed by um, minority groups like African-Americans or uh, the indigenous um, populations. Um, I'd like to close with another finding uh, from the Kerner Commission report. And this, um, actually, before I go there, I didn't mean to, to mention one other thing, um, that, that what we are striving for is equity. And there's a difference between equality and equity. Um, so a good analogy is bicycles. Um, equality means that everyone has a bicycle. And it's the same bicycle, no matter whether you're an adult or a child. But equity means that everybody has a bicycle 
but the size of the bicycle is proportionate to the need of the individual. So a, a, an adult can have a regular size bicycle, but a child would require a, a smaller bicycle. That's equity. So everyone has the same bicycle, has a bicycle, but it's a bicycle that's appropriate to the needs of the person. Um, so I'd like to close with another observation from the Kerner Commission report, and this is uh, a comment that Kenneth Clark, who uh, was a, a distinguished educator and psychologist, made. And referring uh, to reports of earlier riot commissions, he said, I read that report of the 1919 riot in Chicago, and it is, as, it is as if I were reading the report of the Investigating Committee on the Harlem Riot of 35, the report of the Investigating Committee on the Harlem Riot of 43, the report of the McCone Commission of the, on the Watts Riot. I must say again in candor to you, it's a kind of Alice in Wonderland with the same moving picture reshown over and over again, the same analysis, the same recommendations, and the same inaction. The problem with this is, uh, as the commission concluded, it's time now to end the destruction and the violence, not only in the streets of the ghetto, but in the lives of people. The report provided guidance and direction to end white racism and its effects, but it did not generate the political will necessary to make that happen. Generating that political will now depends on us. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you so much, Dr. Z. Deeks, for your presentation. You know, very informative. I would like to now um, hand it over to Dr. Wendy Ellis. Please introduce yourself, Dr. Ellis, and proceed. Good afternoon. Um, before I get started, I want to acknowledge the first traumas of this nation by honoring the indigenous peoples whose land is now our nation's capital. I'm joining you from Washington, D.C., the ancestral lands of the Anacostans, the indigenous tribes of the Anacostia and Potomac River watersheds. So the testimony I'm going to provide today represents my own thoughts and work and I am not representing nor speaking on behalf of George Washington University. Just wanna get that legal part out of the way. Um, gonna go ahead and start to share my screen and tell you a little bit about myself. So I am a doctor of public health and I have been trained here at George Washington University um, in health policy. Prior to becoming a doctor of public health, I actually had a first career in television news as a producer, worked across the country as well as across the globe with very much an interest, a personal interest in adversity and being able to witness adversity, particularly childhood adversity across the country and again, across the globe. And time and again, seeing many of the stories that I wrote and produced talk about systemic failures, particularly with child abuse and neglect, of systems that are to serve our communities and falling short, whether that is in social service, healthcare, education, policing, even housing. A failure to connect across systems to understand and meet basic needs, basic human needs. And so from that frustration of only telling stories 
I decided to roll up my sleeves and actually go back to graduate school and get a master's degree in public health from the University of Washington in Seattle, and then moved to D.C. to pursue my doctorate in health policy. And along the way, continuing this research to understand what is the driver, the root cause of adversity, and why are our systems so disconnected and so unable to be able to reach, to meet, and oftentimes prevent the adversities that we see. In addition to having graduate degrees in public health, I've also amassed a few honors around this work that I've been able to do. So I'm a Milken Scholar, inaugural Milken Scholar at the Milken Institute School of Public Health. I'm also an Aspen Institute Ascend Fellow, which lifts up young leaders in the field of two generational strategies to address parental and child development needs. I've been noted for the work that I've developed here at the George Washington University, the Building Community Resilience Process, which I developed in 2017, has been adopted by numerous communities across the country, as well as in seven governmental agencies across the globe. The new Community Resilience Framework, which I unveiled last year and began to implement in five community, county health departments, has now become one of the strategies as public health begins to think about how do we go upstream and address the policies and the systemic drivers of structural racism to foster equity. And some of that work I will share with you today. So this is to give you a little bit of understanding about the widespread adoption of the work that we do. So this is our national network of building community resilience. These are communities across the country, nine states plus the District of Columbia, and we're adding five more states next month with part of the resilience catalyst work that we do with public health. And as you can see by these logos that are here, that not only do we work in blue states or red states, the work that we are doing is bipartisan by nature. It is also multi-sector by nature. And by design, these efforts are multiracial. Multi you can see there are governmental agencies from the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services to county public health departments, to grassroots organizations, communities, leaders, stakeholders, all coming together to address what Dr. Dietz described as those adverse community environments. Because this is the will that's necessary to address those leaves and branches that are on that parabasis tree. We are in this together, regardless of race, regardless of sector or education. Because as Dr. Dietz said, average childhood experiences are a universal experience in this country. The difference is what you have to bounce back from your access to public education, your access to stable housing, those things, those are the elements of resilience. And so while we talk about adverse childhood experiences, I want to begin to lay a script for you to begin to think about, well, how will we respond? And what is the best way to begin to think about undoing the effects of structural racism and the multi-generational impacts that we've seen? So just to round out 
your understanding of the body of work that I lead at the George Washington University. This is our Center for Community Resilience. I've told you, I've shown you the network, the Building Community Resilience Networks, these national networks of collaboratives, multi-sector, multi-racial, multi-partisan. And the work that we do to help communities define the pair of ACEs for their community and work together to, to foster equity, foster healing, promote resilience. Out of this work, because we are deeply embedded in communities, we've grown to be expert at helping communities speak to and hold space, legislative bodies included, such as yours, to hold space around these very difficult conversations with regard to structural racism and inequity. And understanding the connection that if we want to truly foster healing from trauma and prevent that, then we have to hold these spa this space. We have to have these very difficult conversations because only until then are we actually able to get to resilience. And I wanna do a level set here when we talk about resilience. I'm not just talking about helping individuals bounce back after trauma because we all recognize, particularly in 2020, in the light of this response to this pandemic within a pandemic, COVID-19 and social unrest that's been brought about because of great social injustices, such as the murder of George Floyd right there in Minnesota. We can't expect individuals to heal and bounce back if where the starting point is was from a place of inequity to begin with. That's why equity is at the center of this work because that's the only way that we can truly build resilient communities. And a resilient community helps individuals not only bounce back, but it helps them bounce forward. It's providing the supports and buffers necessary to help them bounce forward and thrive. The Public Health 3.0 work that we do with Resilience Catalysts, that is work that we do directly with county public health departments. Using public health as those chief health strategists to convene across sectors as well as with community to again get to the root causes of inequity. Working with community to foster healing and build resilience. Oftentimes we find ourselves in conversations such as this with lawmakers because we're no longer just researching and producing more data to make the case around equity and resilience. We are translating in real time what this looks like for policy and the implications for appropriations. How do we take our political will and translate that into real action that is measurable in our communities? And so that is the body of work and that is why equity is at the center of everything we do. Connecting systems and policies to these community characteristics and population health outcomes that we know are connected to adverse childhood experiences, but also these adverse community environments. Now, I know in previous testimony, you heard from your experts who referred to the adverse community environments as social determinants of health. And not to confuse things, I do wanna make it very clear that we move beyond in our work to recognize that these social determinants are actually not very deterministic and there's nothing social about them. They are systems driven. 
They are driven by our policies and our practices. And so this work, undoing the effects of structural racism, means that we have to recognize that what's happening to individuals are not by individual choices, but are absolutely driven by policies, policies and practices. So again, just revisiting this tree, I want to reorient you and your thinking about systems and how you can begin to, in your role, begin to address the effects of structural racism. Understanding that the structural racism feeds from the soil, the leaves and the branches on this tree. So when you look at these outcomes and you know the connections to long-term health, you can begin to understand then the policies, the systemic drivers that are behind discrimination, behind community disruption, the lack of opportunity and economic mobility and social capital. These require systems solutions, not programs. We will not program and retrain individuals out of these outcomes. We have to have the will to change from within. Of course, this has been quite evident with COVID-19, and we actually translated the Parabasis tree to help further the point with regard to what does adversity look like? What does it look like at the community level? The preponderance of adversity that has been added on and heaped on to American communities, suburban, rural, urban, and actually the impact has been across all races, but disproportionately so in our communities of color. Disproportionately so in our communities that lack economic mobility. 2020 has shown us that we can no longer keep this secret buried in the soil and unspoken. Structural racism has sprouted in a way that we can no longer just bury. We have to hold space for these conversations. And so our work is to really help communities, help lawmakers, help legislators begin to think about the specific policy levers that are at the root of producing racial inequity. I recognize the indigenous people at the beginning of my talk because I think oftentimes our original traumas and the populations that have been, the multiple populations that have been affected by structural racism are overlooked. And it's important, particularly in Minnesota, to remember all communities of color and the history, the long history of our policy that has been absolutely designed for the outcomes that we see. Whether that was the, the systems of oppression and genocide that were inflicted upon Native Americans to the Black Codes and Jim Crow laws that restricted access for African Americans and newly freed slaves to the redlining where the evidence of the effects multi-generational effects can be measured today in many of your cities where you see the racial wealth gap that impacts individuals' access to economic mobility today, that also impacts the quality of schools that individuals have access to and absolutely informs the differences in community policing that we see. 
in our communities. What I show in front of you is a roadmap of how we got to the inequities that we can measure today by a very deliberate process of policies built upon themselves over the course of 600 years in this, on this continent. This is the work that's before us. These are the levers, the sectors involved in this work. So when we talk about community resilience, then what is it that we should focus on? What should these policies focus on to help us begin to understand how do we undo the effects of these policies and how will we measure this? So this is a close up and as simplified as one can possibly get when you're talking about something as complex as community resilience. But it's important, I think, for this body to begin to understand how will we measure equity? How will we begin to target in our policies, in our appropriations, those things that will make a difference for our communities? So these yellow boxes are actually what we consider stocks. We use systems dynamic modeling in our work to understand how would we measure equity that is driven by policy, practice, and program. And so these yellow boxes are stocks of the community. These are things that help us to understand how are these differences going from race and place-based characteristics of the community. But also, you will notice that some of these things also speak to social determinants. And again, remember, I said at the top of this, this is not about how we ascribe these characteristics to individuals, but understanding that these characteristics are actually outputs and performance indicators of our systems. Home ownership is not just whether or not an individual owns a home, but it's whether you actually, our housing markets and our policies provide a pathway for individuals to own a home. We know that in housing, it is very much, it very much influences the level of economic development that is in a community which then helps us to understand the connection to residents that are employed. And when we connect that over to education, we know because of the way that we fund our, our public schools, that that will then influence the student body composition and the resources that are available to our students. What we've seen in recent years is that also based on the community characteristics, the housing stock, the public school population, there have been differences in how we police our young people, turning schools themselves into a pair of aces, an adverse childhood experience and an adverse community environment. Those things, those policies were driven by criminal justice and law enforcement policies, putting law enforcement in our hallways as opposed to access to health and social behavior supports. Being justice involved, whether you're a youth or an adult, we know is connected to outcomes that go right back to the housing policies, go right back to schools and educational attainment. So you can see why we put all three of these together to begin to understand the relationships, that it will not be just one intervention but we have to think throughout the entire system. So just focusing again on housing 
and understanding the different contextuals that influence whether we have financing and access to capital for individuals and whether those individuals can afford a home helps us to understand the connection to generational wealth, but also the policies that serve as barriers to accessing that. In the public school realm, again, just zooming out and understanding that connection between how we finance our schools. If we're still using this equality standard, then that's not equity because you can clearly see from district to district and even sometimes within districts, the differences in the physical plant of schools, the quality of teachers that are there. In short, public schools are the huge report card on us putting our money where our mouth is. Mm. And then again, we know, just as I've said, how we police in communities and how we police in schools is fundamentally different based on the income base of that community, as well as the racial composition of that community. And so it's no wonder that you have such differences in contact rates and then incarceration rates in communities of color, because they are fundamentally policed differently. And so when you saw those blue ovals, those help us to understand what are the motivations of our different systems and the policies that we adopt across these different systems, whether that's political interest, racism and discrimination, the demonization of young black men, they all play a part and influence. So it's not just enough to change minds. We have to change these pathways fundamentally through policy. So I shared with you in our briefing packet some of these local data to help you understand how these adversities show up across your state and what they look like and how they come to rest under one roof in one community in one school. And so that helps you to begin to understand at the county level, as, as Dr. Dietz said at the beginning, it's not about equality. Some communities fundamentally will need more investment. I have some data that I actually want to point to specifically to make that point. Because while this is a hearing on racial justice, remember, equity can be measured across a number of different ways. And so as we pulled up data to look at what adversity looks like in your state, I think it's important to remember that adversity can be, bur can be a burden regardless of your geography and regardless of your color. Grant, Stevens, Pope, and Traverse counties have some of the highest burdens of adversity in your state. And if one were to just look at the statistics, they would bear out to have many of the same outcomes as your communities of color. And so where we like to draw our differences, oftentimes because of policy, we actually have much more in common. This is why you have to hold space for these equity conversations. Because as the data are bear out, many of these policies that were first intended to impact communities of color in a most oppressive way 
are having the very same impacts in much of rural America. So again, holding space for these difficult conversations and this reckoning is going to be absolutely important for you as state lawmakers to understand the preponderance of adversity, the incidence of it, the differences, and how you will measure equity from a systems point of view. So I want to give you just a small roadmap here on how you might think about policies that will begin to address race-based and place-based inequity across your state. In housing, your zoning policies that reinforce the inability for individuals to access economic mobility because of the lack of affordable housing or perhaps because of some of the, the zoning that actually creates more environmental hazards for individuals, lowering the value of their property. In public schools, fundamentally reassessing financing, how we finance our public schools is inherently inequitable and decidedly was purposefully put in place that way. Criminal justice, again, you've seen this on display. Community policing practice must be fundamentally addressed. But at the same time, we also have to think about how are we putting our money in a place where individuals can actually access the supports and buffers they need, whether that's mental health, emotional health, substance abuse treatment. Many of these activities are not the or should not be the responsibility of law enforcement. And so beginning to think about how we go way upstream to address racial inequities is really important. Now, I've given you the scientific understanding of ACEs and resilience, but I want to tell you a story about why we believe at the Center of Community Resilience that resilience is the answer and resilience comes from multiple systems. You see, you heard Dr. Dietz talk about the connection between the exposure of ACEs to an increasing risk for all of these negative outcomes. It's important, certainly, to know an ad one's adver adversity or ACEs history, but let us not be fooled that an ACEs score is deterministic. I know this because I know from my own experience. You see, I have an ACEs score of eight. Mm. My father beat my mother every day when she was pregnant with me. How I survived, how she survived, I'll never know. I experienced many of those branches that are on that tree, from divorce, from emotional neglect, sexual abuse, discrimination. What I didn't experience was homelessness. What I didn't experience was food insecurity. What I did have access to was safe and stable housing, grandparents who raised me in a community where they felt safe, where they had access to safe jobs, access to the middle class, I had access to quality education from K through 12 with teachers 
who were who were compensated for the work that they did. Teachers who had the time to care about a child who was clear had need for emotional supports. I lived in a community where we had parks and recreation and wonderful programs, swimming, running, playing, just being a child. And the police officers in my neighborhood, they were officer friendly because the police officers in my neighborhood knew us, knew our family, knew, our, knew the members of my grandmother's church. You see, that's what community resilience looks like. And no, I didn't live in a utopia. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. But I grew up in a community that invested, invested in the simple pillars of community resilience access to affordable housing, an opportunity to economic mobility, quality public education, and fair policing practice. So yes, our work is based on the science of average childhood experiences, based on the science of community resilience, but it's also informed by real life. That's the challenge that's in front of you. How do you take all of this science how do you create the will to move forward to finally create an equitable Minnesota? Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks again to the uptake for that audio. Up next, we have a short update from Peter Ratcliffe at the East Side Freedom Library. My apologies for some of the audio challenges that you'll hear. The internet was not my friend today. Here's that interview now. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Serene. How are you? I am doing all right. So I'm glad to have you on air with us again today. And um, you're going to share some upcoming events from the Eastside Freedom Library. Let us know what's on the docket. Great. Happy to. Um, and especially happy that we're actually doing something in person uh, out on our front lawn. So uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, this week, uh, a group of artists and Payne Avenue business people are organizing something called Solidarity Street Gallery, and they're showing art up and down Payne Avenue, most of it behind uh, pane glass windows within businesses, uh, and viewers will be walking on the sidewalk. But we're also going to have an art exhibit at the Eastside Freedom Library um, up against the window wells of the building, and we will have socially distanced opportunities for people to look at the art and meet the artists. And that will be Thursday, October 1, Friday, October 2, both 5 to 9, and Saturday, October 3, from 1 to 9. Uh, we're also going to have music uh, as part of that event. So we encourage people particularly neighbors who are hungry to connect, uh, to come on over to the Eastside Freedom Library this Thursday evening, Friday evening, Saturday afternoon, into the evening. And then next week we have two really great book events uh, online. They will be on our Facebook and YouTube pages. On Tuesday night, uh, three local labor activists will have a conversation with labor journalist Steve Greenhouse about his new book, 
beaten down, worked up. Uh, Steve worked at the New York Times for over 25 years. And we have Javier Murillo, former president of SEIU Local 26. Shireen Horzak, president of AFSCME Local 3800 at the U. And Erica Schatzlein, former vice president of the St. Paul Federation of Educators. They will be talking with Steve about his book, Tuesday night, October 6th at 7. And then next Saturday afternoon at 1, uh, Joanne Wipajewski, who used to be managing editor of The Nation magazine and has just published a book with Verso Press called What, Do, what Don't We Talk About When We Talk About Me Too? Um, and Joanne will be engaged by uh, Najaha Moose, who is a local Oromo activist, um, Sidney Stewart, who is a young African-American student at the U of M, and Michelle Steinwald, who is a choreographer and dancer. And they will all... Oh, that's my dog who deserves a time. Um, Absolutely no worries at all. Yeah, keeps it, keeps it real. It, it certainly is real. <laughs> so um, they will be uh, discussing Joanne's book next Saturday at one. Again, on our Facebook and YouTube pages. We love this format of having authors interacting with people who have read their books, um, and particularly people who are grounded in local communities. And I think the authors love the opportunity to have those kinds of conversations. So that's what's happening in the next week and a half at the Eastside Freedom Library. Wow, that sounds like a wonderful array of events. I'm definitely hoping to stop in for at least a couple of them. Great, great. Thanks for the opportunity, Serene, to talk to your audience and let them know what's going on. Sounds good. Thank you, Peter, for calling in. Thanks to Peter for speaking with me for this, uh, this episode of the Radical News Radio Hour. That's it for now. We'll see you next week for our next episode as we continue to explore social movements and community organizing across the Twin Cities. For now, thank you for listening to the Radical News Radio Hour. You can reach us at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com. You can find us at journalismofcolor.com. And you can listen to all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcast. Pocket Cast, and several other podcast platforms. Thanks to Manny Mestas for this episode's opening and closing theme music. And for now, you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. <laughs>